you have your Bibles, be turning to the book of the prophet Haggai. It's uh, one of those interesting books, a, an important book, um, collected amongst the books called the Minor Prophets. And we often say minor not because of their importance, but minor because of their length. These are short books of prophets who God has called to give messages of great importance to the people of God. And uh, this particular book comes at a very interesting time in the history of the people of God. So, you know, they've been in exile. Uh, We've discussed that, uh, obviously, many, many times. But they went into exile, and they came back. As God promised that they would, that he would preserve a remnant. That's prophesied even back as far as, uh, well, really throughout a prophetic word. But Isaiah 6, certainly we can point to and say that he says that uh, Isaiah will prophesy and preach a message of repentance that people will not listen to. Having ears, they will not hear. Having eyes, they will not see. They will not comprehend what is being said. They will not care. They will not respond. Isaiah says, how long, O Lord, should you call me to do this? And God says, until the cities are laid waste. Until judgment falls upon the land. Preach this message. He says, the tree will be cut down. But life will remain in the stump of the tree. Meaning, God says, I'm not ending the promise. God is faithful to keep His word. His promises cannot fail to stand. He will keep His word. There will be a people of God through whom a Messiah will come. All that will continue to be, but the tree will be cut down. And then there will be tender shoots again. So God has promised all these things. The people come back into the land and they have a mission and a calling. And they are blessed because just as God had prophesied, they would return. In fact, even prophesies how they will return. And it's exactly in the way they do return. That doesn't surprise us. But it certainly was a sweet confirmation to the people who had returned that God had been faithful to His Word, faithful to His promises, that His Word stands. And so we come today to look at this day of Haggai as the people have returned to the land and encounter some problems. And God tells them very specifically what is going on. So I'm going to read this text again, which has been read so well because there's a lot of difficult names in this section. So in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it has come to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, 
and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and on the wine and on the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua the son of Jehozadak the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. As we think about this text... I want us to look at three points. First of all, a time questioned by the Lord. Second of all, a warning offered to the people. And thirdly, we'll close with a great reminder to the people. So jumping right in with a time questioned by the Lord, that's really the prophetic word here, isn't it? It's about a time. It's about an understanding of time and how it's used. There's a question here about if they're fulfilling the time and doing what God has called them to do. But to understand that, we've got to think again about what's occurred, what they know has happened. Because when you think about this for a moment, they've been in exile. They were, many of them, in Babylon. They had uh, experienced life there and all the difficulties attendant to it as a people who've been taken out of their home and taken to a place that is not home. A place where they serve a foreign king and are in the presence of those serving foreign gods. And then Babylon is conquered. Uh, The Medo-Persians came in and conquered Babylon in a night, which we read about in Daniel, and carry many of them into Persia. Now, there's some debate on exactly where Haggai was. Some scholars believe he was always in Jerusalem. Some think he had gone into Persia. Some people think Babylon. Whatever the case is, he is in Jerusalem at the time the people have returned, whether he came with them or uh, had always been there. But whatever the case, he's there, and God is using him as his prophet. And that's what he does. He brings the word of God. Now, how did they get back? Well, we can read about it in Ezra chapter 1. If we were to turn to Ezra, we would read here exactly what happened, as God had promised it would. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, And also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me, and he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with you, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. And whoever is left in any place where he dwells, Let the men of this place help him with silver and gold and goods and livestock, besides the freewill offerings from the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites with all whose spirit God had moved arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. And all those who were around them encouraged them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with precious things, 
besides all that which was willingly offered. Now there's the history, and as it tells us in that very text, it's a fulfillment of what God had promised through Jeremiah, that Cyrus, this future ruler, would declare this and and command the people to go back into the land and rebuild that which was destroyed, which is the temple primarily in view here, but also there's a city to be rebuilt and a wall to be rebuilt and all these things that we read about uh, through the various books that are given to us about the rebuilding of the city after the exile, after the, the city was utterly laid waste by the Babylonians. And so we come here to the fulfillment of this. They have been told by Cyrus to leave and to go home and to rebuild the temple for the worship of God. Why? Because he is God. Even Cyrus has come to declare this. And so that was in 538 that the people left and began the journey and came home, if you will, to this city that was so loved and honored amongst the people of God. All this, this edict, is predicated around the rebuilding of the temple. Cyrus wasn't just saying, go back and build a great city. He was saying, go back and worship God as he has commanded. At the center of all this is the worshiping of God according to the command of God. And so they go back, but it's not the city they remember. The walls are laid waste. The temple is not there. It's been knocked down and destroyed. It is not the great city they would remember from their history that they'd been told about by those who were in exile, their parents and grandparents, those who could remember a previous age and remember what the city had once been like. They come back and they look around them and they say, there's much rebuilding to do. Where will we start? Well, where should they have started? I mean, we could just theoretically argue this, right? They should have started by working on the temple as they were commanded to do. That was the mission for which Cyrus had them return. It's the thing God had prophesied would happen. It's a pretty good indication that Cyrus was, in this case, called by God to do this. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. So what is Cyrus said to do? To rebuild the house of the Lord, to worship God as he has commanded. Now maybe you need somewhere to live. We get that, right? Build your houses. That's fine. Work the land that you'd have something to eat. That's fine. But get about the work the Lord has called you to do. Rebuild the temple. So what happens? As we read the text, we see very quickly that this is not what's happened. That they have argued. In fact, the entire underpinning of the prophecy that Haggai brings is, you have not rebuilt the temple. In fact, you've made the argument that it is not the time to rebuild it. Not Notice that they shouldn't rebuild it. Not that God has not commanded them to rebuild it. I've read some commentators say that maybe they supposed it wasn't God's command to do so. They don't argue that. They don't say, we're not sure if God wants us to rebuild it. They just simply say the timing's not right. It's not yet the day to rebuild. It's not yet the time to rebuild the temple. It's not yet time to do it. Well, my friends, if you look at this word that is brought by Haggai, the prophet of the Lord, and he brings it to the leaders and to the people of, of Israel. What does he say to them? Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This is pretty strong language. The, the Lord who is over all the armies of heaven. He is speaking to you now. And what does he say? He says, this people says. Shocking language, isn't it? Are these not the, pe- the covenantal people of God? Does God not usually address them in much more loving terms like my people says or my people say? 
It's not what he says here. He uses distancing language. He says, this people says. I think this would immediately inform us that God is not pleased, that he is very unhappy with this people. And why? Well, what is it they're saying? They say the time has not yet come. It's not the right time in the providential dealings of God for us to do this thing. Well, what thing? The time that the Lord's house should be built. It's not yet time to do it. We might immediately have some questions about why they would think this. You know, maybe they thought there wasn't a timing put in the decree. Maybe they thought there was a a need to wait for signs or seasons. Maybe there was something God would show them as to when they were supposed to build it, but that's not what the Word says. The prophetic word given to us in Ezra simply says, return to the land and rebuild the temple. The command of God is to go back and to build. In fact, the returning to Jerusalem is, if you will, the sign and season that it's time to build again. Quit waiting on something more. You have what you need. You're there. The place the temple is to be built is before you. The materials you need are there. In fact, Everything has been collected. Maybe the second question would be, has God not adequately provided for their needs to rebuild the temple? Well, Cyrus commanded, as the Holy Spirit of God directed him to, to take up an offering, did he not? Did we not just read that? That those who the Spirit led to return should return. Those who are returning should take up an offering from those who are not returning. An offering of what? Gold and silver and livestock. Remember when the children of Israel left Egypt? Was there not a similar thing happening? The children of Egypt gave them gold and silver and gave them all sorts of treasures to take with them. And those treasures were used for the building of the tabernacle. And here we see again a similar thing. God has commanded that they should make this collection and bring it back and that there would even be free will offerings that should be given by the people who cannot return that they might see this temple be rebuilt. The idea here is all the people of Israel recognized the need for the Lord's house to be rebuilt, that there might be sacrifices, that there might be intercession on behalf of the people. That's what happened. That's what happened in the temple. You know, we've been going through Hebrews. We're going to be back very shortly. But what is at the heart of Hebrews? You need sacrifice. Not ongoing. It's been done in Christ Jesus perfectly. But you do need intercession. You need a mediator. You need someone who is going into that holy of holies and interceding on your behalf, and you have that as well in Christ Jesus. But what was the picture of that before he came into the world? What was the picture of that in the old covenant? Was it not the temple? The ministrations of the temple, the sacrifices that went on there, the intercession of the high priest on Yom Kippur going into the Holy of Holies, abiding in the presence of God and making intercession on behalf of the people. In fact, Hebrews is predicated on what? What was done in very imperfect sense in the Old Covenant is done perfectly in Christ. Why imperfectly? Recap all those sermons, right, on the high priest had to offer sacrifices for his own sins before that of the people. He had to go in for a very limited time, only once a year, and only the high priest could go in. And now we have a perfect high priest being fully God who abides forever behind the heavenly curtains, who abides forever in the presence of his Father at his right hand, making constant, continual intercession for us. All those pictures fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. 
But here, in the Old Covenant days, the foreshadowing of that isn't even in existence right now. And everyone in Babylon, in Persia, returning back to the land, recognized we need this. This is at the heart of the Old Covenant, that there would be a place of sacrifice and intercession on behalf of the people. God demands this. But from our perspective, not only is it demanded, but we're glad that He's given us this grace. That there is this place of God's presence amongst His people. There is a place of sacrifice for our sins. There is a place of intercession on our behalf. This is gracious, and we're thankful for it. But the people return, and they don't seem too grateful, do they? They start going, when are we going to begin this project? When the time is right. When the time is right. Well, when is the time right? I think that is the question Haggai is asking. Is it not when you arrive in Jerusalem? God has appointed for you to do this. He has provided for you to do this. When is the appointed hour? And notice the the sarcasm here. Because it says, The the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Look at verse 4. Is it time for yourselves to dwell in paneled houses? It's not the time to build the temple. It's not time to build the Lord's house. But it apparently was time for you to build your own houses. And the word here that's used is pretty important to think about because it doesn't just mean a roof. I mean, it literally, if you take that, that word for in panel there, it does mean to put a covering over. The idea is a roof. But it is also tied to rich paneling. The idea is you didn't just build a, a, a roof over your house, but you finished your house. You understand the difference there in building terms? You might talk about drying in a house, right? You get a roof over it, you get it sealed up, you can live in it but maybe you haven't done the finished carpentry work. Here what he's saying is, through the Hebrew word, you did the finished carpentry work. Right? You did everything on your own home. You had time to do all the little details on your own home. But you haven't found time to begin to rebuild the Lord's house. It's been 20 years at this point since Cyrus made the edict. 20 years when the word of the Lord comes through Haggai to the people. You've had a lot of time. When do you think it'll be the right time? What other priorities do you see that you need to address before you consider the temple? Before you consider this thing that we were just talking about was all our hopes for returning into the land that we could be in the place where the Lord dwells amongst His people. The place that He has graced us with. How long until you get around to it? Is there any more work to do on your own homes? Is there any other jobs you need to take care of? Is there anything else that you need to address before the Lord's house is worked on? And notice, he doesn't just say before you finish the Lord's house. He says, my house lies in ruins. You haven't done anything. As Nebuchadnezzar left it, I still find it. It is utterly laid waste. It's interesting, that word means to be ruined or desolate. It comes from a root word that means dried up. If you follow what he goes on to say beyond that, in verses 11, you've left my house dried up, withered away. And what's the response from God? I called for a drought on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock, on all labor. The drought you've left my house in is what's now become of your lands. 
And if you follow that out, he continues to say it, that all that you have provided for yourself, I blow away like dust, like something that's dried up and withered away. I blow it away so that you have nothing. Now, if you continue into our second point here, there is a warning offered to the people because there's much more here than just calling out their excuses. He's explaining why they are not experiencing the blessings that they expected to experience. Can you imagine when you're in Persia, right? You're sitting here going, if we can just get back to Jerusalem, we'll have the glory days again, right? We'll, we'll, who knows what God will do, but, but a Davidic king, and we'll rebuild the palace of the king, and we'll have the temple where we can see all those things happen again, and we'll have walls and be protected from our enemies, and it will be glorious. We will have the wealth that we won, once before had. I'm sure that was the dream, and now all these years later, they're back. And what do they have? Poverty. No temple rebuilt, no walls rebuilt, no palace. Poverty. And look at what God says. He says, consider your ways. What does this wording mean from God? Think about what's happening. Think about what you're doing. Don't focus on what you think I ought to be doing. What are you doing? And if you consider your ways, you'll notice a pattern. You don't have much crop, but it's not because you're not sowing. He says you sow much, but you harvest little. You reap little. You eat, but you're never full. Because the idea of small meals, there's not enough food. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but you're not able to stay warm. You earn wages only to put that money into a bag with holes. Now, whether or not you want to think about that as a money bag or think of it as pocket, you know, you put some change in your pocket, you don't realize you've got a hole and you're walking down the road and you have an empty pocket, you don't even realize it. Maybe that's actually happened to you at some point. But the continual happening of this is kind of the opposite of being under the blessings of the Old Covenant. That's the point here. The blessings of the Old Covenant were that these are the set-apart people of God who God will bless in the land if they are obedient. Right? We see this over and over again. And he says here, you are doing all the things that you imagine you need to do to provide for yourself, but they're not availing what you expect them to avail. Right? You're, you're throwing your efforts into growing more and making more clothes and all the things that you're doing, but you're never finding what you desire through it. I think if you want to find something in the Scriptures that is shown as the, uh, the result, if you will, of cursing, it's this, right? It is, it is this cycle that you're in. And he says here, it's going to continue. Consider your ways. There's a warning here that it's going to continue. If you continue in the same ways, you're going to find this continue to happen. You can't sow more and reap more in this case because it's God who has dried up the land. You can't water your land and fix this problem. God is not going to allow it. So again, when you see this, there is a warning here that there is a great problem for them. And what he's saying is it's tied to the fact that they have not done what they've been called to do. If you want to get right down to the heart of this and go back to the Torah, they have not obeyed the covenant. They are the covenantal people. They are to come back into the land and to live according to the covenant that God has made with them and yet what do they do they say eh, the temple we'll get around to it one day at the heart of what God calls them to be is a people who recognize the center place of God in their lives 
it's often said that the people of Israel never struggle with idolatry after the exile, right? They come back in the land, and it doesn't seem to be the same kind of problem it was before they went into exile. But there is the same root problem here, isn't there? We talked about this a little bit in our Sunday school class, but in Romans 1, what does Paul say is at the heart of idolatry? The desire to worship the creature rather than the creator, right? We like to worship created things. Why? We're in charge of them. If I carve an idol, I define the idol. I get to tell you exactly what this God I've created desires of me. Okay, this is a pretty easy God to get along with. He just wants me to bring him a plate of food once a day. I can do that. And I've pleased the gods, or at least this one. And so in a way, we worship ourselves, don't we? We give value to what we have created, not to God who has created all things. At the heart of that is putting ourselves first. Worshiping ourselves, putting ourselves first. And though the people here aren't accused of idolatry, the root is the same because they're focused on themselves. Let's make sure what we need is taken care of first. Not just, again, drying in the, the house so that we can live comfortably and be safe. No, let us finish our own homes to live in comfort, to live in comfort. And then eventually, when the time is right, we'll get to the temple. My friends, there is a serious problem here, and God is telling them they will not find blessing so long as this continues. And so what does he say to do? Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build my temple. Why? That I might take pleasure in it and be glorified. God takes pleasure in his people worshiping him and adoring him. He takes pleasure in it. He calls us to do this very thing. And God is telling them, this is what I desire of you. Go and do the things commanded that I might be glorified and take pleasure in what you are doing. We're going through a catechism, but we know that these start with the first question. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. To bring glory to God. And God is saying, what you need to do to bring me glory is to do what you've been commanded to do. Build the temple. I will take pleasure in you building this temple. Build it that I may be glorified. That you may worship rightly. Build the temple. If you want to know what the chief end of man is, it's to bring God glory, to, to honor Him. And the people have focused on their own lives, their own desires, their own ends, not on that of God. And so God has said, as long as this is the case, don't expect to get the blessings that the covenant brings with us, brings with it, because you're in violation of that covenant. And so all the, the things that you would have expected in the land, a land flowing with what? Milk and honey? Don't read much about milk and honey in this text. A land with vineyards that you never planted, gardens that you never planted, you just have to reap them and enjoy the benefits of it. And when you think about the curse that's put on creation in Genesis, that in, in struggle will the, bring, will the earth bring forth food. And God promises His people when you enter this land, it's almost like a little bit of a respite from that. Yes, you'll have to work. There's no question about it. But you didn't plant these vineyards. You just receive the harvest of them. Work the crop. But you will be taken care of with bountiful harvests if you simply remember the covenant and honor God. And here this people 
isn't a mystery. Like, we haven't honored God. We haven't done what He's commanded us to do. There is no blessing. How can we understand this? God says, consider your ways. Consider the covenant. Consider what you believed was the purpose for your return into the land. Rebuild the temple. Build it. For I have a great work yet to do. So I want to close with this. There's a great reminder here for the people of God. First, for the generation that we're reading about. Because if we look at these last few verses, something amazing happens here. After the people go on to do what they're commanded to do and to rebuild the temple, notice what it says. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. First of all, a recognition that Haggai was the prophet of God and that they should obey him, that it is the word of God. But notice also this. The people feared the presence of the Lord. I think that tells us what they had not been doing. If they've begun now to fear the presence of the Lord, it means that they weren't fearing it before. There was kind of a casual focus on our own lives every day, what we need to do instead of on the glory of the Lord. And now there's that healthy fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom amongst the people. And they do what he's called them to do. They've repented of the sin of disobedience. And now they are going to do what he has called them to do. And immediately, notice how the Lord addresses them. He doesn't refer to them anymore as this people, right? This people, this very generic, these people over here. He now reminds them of his covenantal promise to his people. That they are his And look at what he says in verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I am with you. There should be no more precious words that we can hear than the Lord is with us. Everything will be changed if if they continue in this covenantal obedience. Everything will be different moving forward. Now, we can read these other books to see how well they continue forward in that, but... But again, that's the promise here. The Lord is with them. He is gracious. Though time and again they have failed, violated the covenant, though time and again God would have been right to throw them away, absolutely right to have done so, He doesn't. Why? Because He has made a steadfast promise that through the seed of Abraham, one will come forth, the seed of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. God has a promise yet to keep. And he will keep it. He is steadfast and sure to keep it. Now, we might come to a question, how to take this text for us. Is this just a historical document? Is this a a formula for us to, to think about what we need to do? Well, we know that all Scripture is given to us for profitability for us, right? For reproof and correction, for training in righteousness. What does this say to us? There is something in human beings in which we can get very self-focused, can't we? We can put off the things of the Lord and get focused on what we need to do. And I don't mean God's design for our lives. I mean just what our design for our life is. Like whatever we're wanting to focus on, this is the most important thing, and we'll get around to the things of God at the appropriate time. And we'll even couch it oftentimes in that kind of religious language. Well, this just isn't the time God's appointed. You know, there's a time for everything under the sun. And this just isn't the time. But the Lord reminds us here, sometimes those are just excuses. Sometimes they're just our ways of shuffling off what God has called us to do because we don't want to do it. We want to do what we want to do. 
And again, that is that root sin that leads to idolatry, to the worshiping not of God, but to ourselves. And so we need to recognize in this that there are things that God has called us to do. And so we need to consider our ways as well. Are we doing what God has called us to do? And there are applications. Obviously, we can't apply this exact text fully to us. We understand that. There's no temple for us to build. That's at the heart of our relationship to God. But there are things we are commanded in Scripture that we are to be doing. How about mortifying sin in the flesh? Well, now's not the time, right? Now, I'll mortify flesh later. No, God said, if you're in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit within you, if you are a son of God through what Christ Jesus has done, you are to be mortifying the flesh now, today. Well, sanctification, now's not the time. My friends, what is the Holy Spirit doing then? Now is the time. Now is the time. So as we think about our lives, we think about the commands of Scripture, there's always the reminder, always the reminder to consider our ways. Are we doing what God has called us to do? And if not, why? And if we think we have a good reason, we need to challenge that reason and ask, is it really not yet the time? Or is that just our excuse so we can focus on what we want to focus on?